Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. My name is Sabina Horvath and I am a 2016 Sir Roland Wilson Scholar. As we commence our events this evening, we acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. I would like to particularly welcome Martin Bowles, Secretary, Department of Health, Jane Holton, Secretary, Department of Finance, Chris Moraitis, Secretary, Attorney General's Department, John Lloyd, Australian Public Service Commissioner, Sir Lennox Hewitt, Patricia Hewitt's father, who turned 99 last Saturday. <laughs> Ted Crook, Sir Roland Wilson board member. Bob Brugnick, acting director at Crawford School of Public Policy. And Jenny Corbett, uh, pro-vice-chancellor, research and research training. For those of you who are not familiar with Sir Roland Wilson and the foundation established in his name, I would like to say a few words. Sir Roland Wilson was born in Tasmania and was the first person in his family to complete high school. Sir, Ro uh, Sir Wilson studied at the University of Tasmania, won a Rhodes Scholarship, and while at Oxford, won a further scholarship to the University of Chicago. He subsequently returned to Australia with his wife to, to take up a position at the University of Tasmania. In March 1932, he moved from academia to the public service. And in 1951, he was appointed secretary to the treasury, the youngest person at the time to be appointed to that position. He held the position until he, retired, until he resigned in 1966, serving in the post longer than any other treasury head. The Launceston Examiner perceptively noted at the time of his appointment that for 50 years, Treasury administration had been in the hands of persons who were predominantly accountants and graduates from the Treasury's accounting department. Wilson's appointment marks the first Australian experiment of this kind, and it's a good bet that as far ahead as one can see, all of his successors will be economists too. The Sir Roland Wilson Foundation was established in 1998 from a generous endowment provided by the Wilson Estate. The purpose of the foundation is to advance the study and development of public policy and management within Australia and internationally, and to honour the reputation of Sir Roland Wilson and the legacy he left to the study of economics and public policy. The foundation engages in three main activities within the public policy space. The scholarship program established in 2011 in conjunction with the Commonwealth Government awards PhD scholarships to high achieving Commonwealth public servants and gives them an opportunity to make an active contribution to academic discourse that is of direct and enduring relevance to the Australian public service. There are five outstanding individuals that have completed their theses 
and 15 individuals that are currently Sir Roland Wilson Scholars. The Foundation also develops an interface between the Australian Public Service and the ANU by facilitating the exchange of research ideas across the two institutions. The Foundation hosts public lectures and topics and sorry and seminars on topics that are of national significance. The next Sir Roland Wilson public event is on the 19th of May at the National Library and is a post-budget analysis. Further details can be found on the Foundation's website. This public lecture, the 2016 Sir Roland Wilson Annual Oration, the 11th in this series of events, continues to attract esteemed and engaging speakers and contributes to, the, to understanding the black art of mastering effective public policy. <laughs> Our three speakers will reflect on their personal experiences of power, politics and personality on the introduction of innovative policy, both here in Australia and in the UK. You may have seen the attractive advertisement for tonight's event and its catch cry of lining up the ducks. Mm -hmm. I find the title to be illuminating, not only from the overt colloquialism to lining up your ducks, but it plays on the concept of being a lucky duck. <laughs> Too often I hear myself and others failing to give full credit to the hard work thoughtful strategic analysis, the ability to harness and utilise opportunities in a timely fashion, and building and enabling productive working relationships. Instead of recognising the, the work, strengths and qualities of successful individuals, we congratulate those individuals on their luck. As you listen to our speakers tonight, I encourage you to identify the respective personal and professional qualities that have resulted in impossible policies becoming possible. Mm. Our first speaker tonight, the Right Honourable Patricia Hewitt, was educated at Canberra Girls Grammar School, the ANU, and Cambridge University. I've been told by a colleague who attended ANU with Ms Hewitt that the Hewitt children were very much encouraged to make valuable contributions through their chosen professions. Ms Hewitt's contributions include co-chairing the Commission on Social Justice in her capacity as Deputy Director of the Institute of Public Policy Research in the early 1990s. The Commission laid out an ambitious agenda of social policy reform that had a lasting impact on public policy debates. Ms Hewitt's valuable contributions continue, and in 1997 she became a member of the UK Parliament. She was Economic Secretary at the Treasury from 1998 to 1999, and then the Minister for Small Business and E-Commerce from 1999 until 2001. She was Secretary of State for Trade and Industry from 2001 until moving to the, to the Department of Health. On the 27th of June 2007, Ms Hewitt announced her retirement from, front, from frontline politics. Ms Hewitt has a range of experiences relevant to our topic this afternoon. Our second speaker is Professor Bruce Chapman, Professor of Economics at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. Professor Chapman also attended school in Canberra and studied at the ANU. He completed his PhD at Yale University. He has published over 200 papers on a range of issues, including income contingent loans, long-term unemployment, the meaning of job flows data, the economics of crime, the economics of cricket, fertility, <laughs> marital separation, and government as a risk manager. 
He has advised the Australian and other governments, along with the World Bank, on student loan policy and was integral in the development of the HEX scheme here in Australia, the first of its kind in the world. I have been reliably informed that if you would like to, dis to discuss cricket, and in particular Sir Donald Bradman, Professor Chapman is the person to speak with. And according to his profile page on the ANU website, he is quite friendly, ex <laughs> excessively modest, and a tenacious, fanatical and mediocre bridge player. <laughs> <laughs> Completing our panel this evening is Dr Ken Henry. While Dr Henry may require no introduction, let me briefly note that Dr Henry studied at the University of New South Wales prior to completing his PhD at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. Dr Henry has been described as one of Australia's most outstanding public policy contributors, especially as Secretary to the Treasury from 2001 to 2011. He demonstrated, as did Sir Roland Wilson, the value of economists leading the Commonwealth Treasury. Dr Henry holds, currently holds a number of positions, including Chair of the National Australia Bank Board and Chair of the Sir Roland Wilson Foundation. I would like to welcome Dr Henry. Mm. Well. Mm. Wow. Um, thank you very much, Sabina. Um, let me take the opportunity, firstly, to thank you and uh, to explain to all of you, and thank you very much for coming here this evening, uh, that Zabina is indeed one of our newest scholars in the Sir Roland Wilson uh, PhD scholarship program. Uh, she's from the Department of Defence and her research is into an important and complex area of Australia's human rights obligations when engaged in extraterritorial armed conflict, to try and get your mind around that. And it's a feature of the Sir Roland Wilson Foundation uh, scholars that um, they're researching uh, a number, quite a number of, of very disparate issues, challenging issues that go right across the policy responsibilities of Australia's public servants. Um, and, uh, and it's a delight to have a number of those scholars here with us tonight. Welcome to you all. I also want to take the opportunity to acknowledge the presence of Sir Lennox Hewitt. Um, and as has already been remarked, um, he achieved a rather important milestone on the weekend. But he is uh, well known to people familiar with Australia's economic history and more than economic history because of the enormous contribution that he himself made to the Australian public service. Uh, he, his talents were spotted when he was a very young man by Sir Douglas Copeland. Uh, working on post-World War II reconstruction. Uh, he was Deputy Secretary to the Treasury under Sir Roland Wilson. Uh, they were very close, very close. Uh, and uh, Sir Lennox was the first Secretary of the first ever Prime Minister's Department uh, in that role under Prime Minister John Gorton. Sir Lennox has been, I would say, all of his professional life an eloquent supporter of an impartial public service. Uh, and he has, he's on the record as being strongly opposed to the removal of tenure for senior public servants. I want to say just a little bit about that, just a little bit about it. The motivation, as I understand it, and there are economic historians in the room who have a better sense of this than me, but as I understand it, the motivation for the removal of tenure was to make the Australian Public Service more responsive 
to the government of the day. The question is whether, in my mind anyway, whether in making the public service more responsive, and I accept that it may have done that, whether it's made the public service less responsible. What I mean by that is that um, a responsive advisor is very likely to tell the government of the day what they want to hear. A responsible policy advisor is more likely to tell the government of the day what they need to hear, and maybe particularly if they don't want to hear it. As I've mentioned, Sir Lennox has had a very close link with Sir Roland. They were close friends and allies from early in their careers. And as you've heard, uh, and perhaps, I'm not sure if, if Sir Lennox would, would agree with me on this, but I suspect he would, that his greatest achievement is this lady sitting here to my <laughs> left. Um, so the format of this evening, and, that, and that's enough uh, from me by way of introductions, we're now going to have a conversation, the three of us. Uh, I'm going to kick off the conversation by asking Patricia a question. If you'll bear with me, I'll take my seat. So we want to have a, a conversation this evening about the way in which policies are made. It was described by Zabina as the dark arts of policy making. Uh, it's natural to assume that policy is evidence-based and that the process is a rational process. Uh, the truth is, well, that's not the truth. Um, <laughs> and, um, and indeed, the policy-making process tends to be quite complex and, um, and successful policy, often in retrospect, appears quite opportunistic doesn't mean that it is opportunistic, but in retrospect can appear quite opportunistic. Usually overlaid with some peculiarities in political developments, and, and we're going to talk about some of those this evening. One of the questions that intrigues me, and, I, and I'm sure it intrigues, well perhaps it intrigues everybody in the room, is why it is that some policies that you would expect to be simply too politically difficult ever to be legislated end up being legislated and sustained. Uh, whilst other policies that you would think uh, are rather, un, uh, well, rather easy uh, politically, never get legislated. Some of them never see the light of day. Others get legislated and then there's a change of government and, and um, they're repealed. Policies which might be considered to be if not mundane, at least uncontroversial, um, including politically uncontroversial, and yet um, these things happen. So I want, to, I want to start, we're going to start with the Heck story, because this is a rather intriguing story. Um, and both Patricia and Bruce uh, were involved in changing the arrangements for the funding of university education in two different countries, obviously, in Australia and the United Kingdom. Um, and as it happens in, in both occasions under Labor governments. But I want to start with you, Patricia. Can you tell us a bit about how the story unfolded sure. in the United Kingdom and what, what you consider to be the important elements for policy advisers um, from that experience? Great. Well, thank you very much indeed, Ken. It's such a pleasure um, to be here. And I'm just conscious of this microphone, so if people, particularly up in that corner, have trouble hearing, just wave, would you, and I'll talk more loudly. Um, so I was involved in 
the initial policy work, which actually was evidence-based, uh, <laughs> around student fees when I was at a think tank, Institute of Public Policy Research, which we'd set up, and this was in the days when Labour was in opposition, we'd set it up as part of the whole project of modernising the Labour Party. Commission on Social Justice was set up, as Ken, I know, Sabina, I think, mentioned. And one of the issues we looked at was funding of university students. And we looked, of course, at the Australian experience. But we also just looked at the facts of how university funding worked in the UK. And the fact was you had the majority of the population, some of them on fairly low incomes, paying into their uh, paying their taxes, and out of those taxes, you had uh, free tuition and some grants going to students who were, at that point, still a relatively small minority of the population, overwhelmingly drawn from the better-off families, and most of them going on, as a result of their university education, to earn above average, indeed well above average, incomes. Now, that didn't seem to us on the Commission on Social Justice particularly socially just. And given the fact that we wanted to expand university education and we needed public spending on a whole set of other priorities, we clearly needed to tackle that. But it was also one of those classic um, issues of left conservative opposition, if you like. Mm -hmm. So we made the argument in the Commission on Social Justice, absolutely on fairness grounds. Put it out there in our report, and life went on. Labour was elected, landslide victory with Tony Blair in 97. We did something initially very uncontroversial, which was just to introduce rather limited um, student tuition fees, £1,000 a year. That went through. The big row happened in 2001 when we'd, Tony Blair had very reluctantly been persuaded to put into the manifesto a promise that we wouldn't introduce what were called top-up tuition fees. In other words, Australian style, the kind of thing we had recommended from the Social Justice Commission. There was a lot of opposition from the left and from the trade union movement. And for party management reasons, Tony agreed to exclude it in the manifesto. We won the 2000 election with another huge majority. The vice chancellors came to see the prime minister and said, we're on the verge of bankruptcy. We've got either, either we've got to have more public funding, which wasn't really available, or we have got to have top up tuition fees where we can uh, set a variable fee depending on, you know, basically the course, and students would repay them after they graduated. And Tony was, rightly in my view, completely convinced of the argument. He'd appointed, as it happened, an old friend of mine, Charles Clark, um, as his cabinet minister for education, a real bruiser of a politician, who, at this point, we get the dirty politics, right? We've had mm -hmm. the evidence-based policy, now we get the politics. Mm. So, we've got the left of the party, and obviously the student movement against it. We've got 
Uh, unfortunately, Gordon Brown, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Finance Minister, against it. Not because he was really against it, but because he thought it was time Tony ceased to be Prime Minister and he took over. <laughs> so, and, 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 you know, a lot of policies got, took, got taken hostage to this dynamic and student fees was one of them. So Charles was in there just having two years of rows with Gordon on the policy. And Tony also appointed a wonderful minister for higher education called Alan Johnson. Some of you may have read his memoirs. Alan came, he'd, he'd been orphaned as a young boy, grew up in very impoverished circumstances, never went to university, became a postman, rose to become general secretary of the Postal Workers Union, and from that had become a Labour member of parliament. So he embodied the social justice case for what we were proposing. And so between Tony Blair, Charles Clark, Alan Johnson, and the rest of us Blairites and public service reformers in the cabinet, finally we got it through. But actually the story that I only partly knew at the time was, well, I knew at the time, as we all knew, Gordon had of course made it very clear, publicly as well as privately, that he was against all this. And he'd lined up several of his supporters on the back benches to threaten to vote against it. Mm. And, mm. you know, with the left mm. rebelling and all of that, I mean, it wasn't at all clear we could actually mm. get it through. And finally, Tony actually had to make some promises to Gordon about when he would step down that then led Gordon to call off his uh, hunting dogs, as it were, and, and let the bill go through. So you've got some kind of very nice think tank, evidence-based you know, policy making, and you've got some really low, dirty politics <coughs> and you know, some party politics in between all of that. And that's a fairly mm. typical story, really, I think, of ultimately successful policy making. Your, your think tank, um, it, had, it had the advantage of being able to look at what had happened in Australia. Absolutely. Um, and, and so I, I now want to ask this guy on my left, um, who, who, is, um, who carries the reputation as being the father, perhaps it's the godfather of income contingent loans, um, and of PEX in particular. It's certainly now the grandfather. The grandfather. And, um, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, and um, so where did this come from, Bruce? And, and um, Patricia has taken us through some of the, the political considerations or events that affected the UK, um, and of course there was politics playing out in Australia as well, and you were experiencing that firsthand. Can you tell us a bit about where, where the idea came from, how you found yourself in this position uh, of offering advice to a Prime Minister on income contingent loans, and, and HECS in particular, um, and how you saw the, the politics and to what extent the politics affected the policy design and implementation? It's uh it's quite clear that the similarities between what happened yeah. in the UK and Australia are very, are very big. Maybe I'll start by setting the scene that confronted John Dawkins in 1987. So Labor <coughs> won the election in 87. He was a young minister, but he was in Cabinet and uh, it was his, his, he's in the education portfolio. The biggest problem for him 
was that the school retention rate studies, the proportion of people who were finishing high school, mm. had all basically doubled from the period like 1982 to about 1987. So that number had gone up from uh, just over 30 to nearly 70%. And so they had a very large number of people who were qualified to go to university. But this was a government, a Labor government, that basically didn't want to look like the previous Labor government. They wanted to be seen as low tax and low spend. And the idea of spending a lot of money on the extra places did not appeal in the broader philosophical context of where they saw themselves in labour. But he had to do something about the queues. And that meant money had to be found. And that was kind of the motivation. Uh, and the other point, which was similar also from what Patricia said, there was a group of people in Cabinet, John Dawkins, Peter Walsh, uh, Finance Minister, I think Paul Keating, I think Bob Hawke, but it was mainly Dawkins and Walsh, and they spent a lot of time together, mainly on the plane from Perth to Canberra. <laughs> and this probably became a, a, a critical mm. point of yeah. how unfair the world is in their eyes. And the unfairness was what Patricia described. It was a sense of the regressivity of a so-called free system. So the word free uh, means free to the students. It didn't mean free. There is no free. So taxpayers were paying, and the idea that... Um, people who would go on to do very well in the labour market, and in particular, as, and as well, came from very advantaged side of the tracks, was something that's kind of annoyed them. They thought it was regressive and thought it was fair. I can remember some of the rhetoric even now, mm -hmm. with John Dawkins saying, if you come from a managerial professional family, you've got a, f a chance of going to university which is four times greater mm -hmm. than if you come from an unskilled or a semi-skilled background. And they all knew about the rates, well, they didn't know about the rates of return and that kind of jargon. But when I, I was in John Dawkins' office as a consultant and I sure I kind of understood all that and I could reinforce all that. And that was kind of what set the scene for the introduction of, of mm -hmm. tuition. Uh, so my job was to write an op options paper, which I, I did. And I spent a few months looking at this, mainly at ANU because the old Parliament House, you better believe it was a shocker of a place to work. It was beautiful <laughs> to be in. But yeah. we were kind of literally all sitting on each other's head yeah. in his office. Well, when I think about that, it's literally not possible to everyone sit on everyone else's head. But no. it, it felt like that. But I, the options paper looked at various possibilities. And one was um, scholarships and upfront fees and with bank loans, the United mm. States system mm. and the Canadian system and other places and mm. that had negative sides to it I thought. Um, it meant that students who defaulted on their loans would lose their credit reputation and the biggest problem really with normal loan student loan systems is the difficulties people face in repaying it. You could stop this if it was income contingent. Exactly. So that's the critical point about mm -hmm. HECS. You can never pay more than 8% of your income so if you don't have a job or you don't graduate but you still got a debt and you have low income no, no issue. So think mm. of it as insurance. And I kind of explained all that as far as I understood it, because I might say that at the time we didn't really understand a lot. We kind of it grew on us in a way. Mm. Um, and the economics of income contingent loans only really became it's an amazing thing to say, but only became very clear much later. Mm. Mm. Now, what also helped in the adoption of this particular variant, because John Dawkins was very bothered by my report, I remember this amazingly kind of weird conversation where he said to me, uh, 
you obviously in your options paper, it was a classic options paper, you say there are, here are the options minister, but you better do this one because <laughs> I don't like the others and here are the reasons. So he, we had this weird conversation where he said to me, um, do you think it will work then? Because it hadn't, and I said, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, well, um, how many other countries do it like this? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, none. Um, none that I can think of, which made it look like I didn't know what other countries did. And he said, well, what will, what will the students think? The, the gaps got longer and longer. What will the students think? And I said, oh, they'll, they'll hate it. Uh, <laughs> because at the moment they don't pay anything, and even though it's got these insurance benefits, they're now paying something before. He said, well, what about the vice chancellors? What will they think? And I said, well, they'll hate it too. <laughs> and the reason they're basically old-style lefties, and old-style lefties kind of don't like this stuff. They like free, and you're not giving them any money. So uh, <laughs> they won't support that at all. And I can remember looking at him. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with somebody who thinks you're a moron. <laughs> but that's what he looked like. And so he was looking at me. He didn't say anything for quite a long time. And then he, and this was the critical, the key question he mm. said, because I wanted the money. He said, well, when do we get the money? Mm. Like, has it got any redeeming features at all? <laughs> now, of course, it's a contingent debt. Mm. So I said, well, it's a contingent debt, and so you've got to wait till people graduate, and then they've got to get over the threshold. <laughs> and the first threshold was quite high. It was $73,000 in current um, terms. So I said, oh, the money will start trickling in in about five or six years. <laughs> well... To him, this was probably the worst bit of public policy that was imaginable. Everyone would hate it. It probably couldn't work, and you get nothing from it. <laughs> so ask yourself this question, why did it happen? Mm. And the reason it happened is really because of the Labor left, in a way, because um, there was... And this was the biggest opposition. It was mostly romance for the abolition of fees under the Whitlam government in 1974. And if you saw the memorial service to Gough Whitlam, as I did, you might remember Kate Blanchard. Kate Blanchard's wonderful uh, eulogy basically said the most important thing that Gough Whitlam ever did was the abolition of tertiary fees. And this got a standing mm -hmm. ovation. I mean, this was more important mm -hmm. than withdrawing troops from Vietnam and ending conscription. This was more important than recognising China. This was more important than sewerage in the western suburbs of Sydney. Um, mm -hmm. This was more important believe this than, than universal health insurance. But it was more important and it was very, very odd because we looked at this quite closely at the time and it was very clearly misunderstood because the abolition of fees would never really matter. And the reason it was not going to matter was that almost nobody paid fees. That's the first point. So mm -hmm. something like 75 to 80 percent of people had a Commonwealth scholarship. Some of you in the room would have had one. Yeah. Or a Teachers College scholarship and they excused fees. And that wasn't well known, but uh, I remember an extraordinary meeting in John Dawkins' office where a senior public servant said, quite riskily, I thought, yes, Minister, you mustn't worry about this because the only people who ever paid fees were rich and dumb. <laughs> and because they couldn't get a scholarship and their parents could pay. And I thought, I'm, I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> I mean, I might have believed it, but I wouldn't have said it. And uh, John Dawkins sort of put his head down and scratched his eye for a minute and he said, well, actually, um, I pay fees. <laughs> and Vince Fitzgerald, wonderful public servant, his secretary of his department, said after... Point three of a second, I paid fees too, Minister. <laughs> <laughs>
Nobody believed him. <laughs> Nobody believed that he could have been, she could have been so unlucky and picked the only two people in the country who paid fees who <laughs> said that they were both rich and um, <laughs> so the, but that was kind of a benefit effects because it was such a little pussycat, it was so benign in appearance. You only pay 1% of your taxable income. The fee was about mm. 20%, $1,800 mm. then, yeah, and only at 73000 And what John Dawkins needed was a kind of a little teddy bear, uh, something that looked non-threatening. Upfront fees and bank loans, I don't think it would have worked. And it had to go to the ALP platform and mm. it got through by three votes out of 390 and essentially had trade union support, which was very important. But it was the softness. I mean, the economists will say, well, we like this income contingent loan. It's got insurance benefits. You can't mm. default. It's got consumption smoothing. If only you could make it work. Um, and we basically it could be made to work. So the economics suited the situation. The politics mm. did too. Interestingly, even though the politics nearly knocked it off because yeah. of the left. Mm. So mm. that's kind of, in a nutshell, it's so, mm. it's so similar in a way, particularly the Bruce. side of the and left. Of the left. Listening, listening to this it, as well, it, it, it's very interesting. You know, student fees or contingent, income contingent mm. uh, tuition fees is, is one of these odd policies that, you know, the left do generally hate and yet there are very good left arguments for it. But I, I once reminded, your story reminds me of this, I once reminded Tony Blair of something that happened before the 97 election. John Smith, who had been the Labour leader before Tony died very suddenly, and it was clear that Tony was going to become the new leader, but that hadn't yet happened. And we were just coming to the sort of end of our social justice report so we were briefing Tony in private on our main findings. And we went through a whole series of things. And Tony had a, he had a very, became clear, he had a really clear idea of what became new labor, you know, radical, but absolutely rooted in traditional values of fairness and so on. And so as we went along, he said, oh yes, I like, I like such and such policy, that sort of, 100% where we need to be. And then something else where perhaps we'd trimmed a bit, he said, oh, it's only about 75% where we need. You need to be more radical on that. And then we got to the student loan thing, and we explained it, and we set out, you know, Australia, and just as well we were able to quote that, really. And he said, oh, oh, he said, mm, yes, that's very radical. He said, that feels like about... 150% where we need to be. So, you know, this was mm. 1995, I think. So, several years later, when we were going through this knockdown fight to get it done, I reminded Tony of what he'd said about it. And of course, by then he was completely converted to it and extremely unhappy to be reminded of the fact that he'd once been a bit, um, a bit nervous about it. But mm. uh, it yeah. had that effect on people. Well, one of the mm. things I wanted to ask Ken about tonight mm. was when you think about what happened with the, with the HEX system, I mean it was introduced fairly quickly but we had yeah. a lot of time. We had a lot of time to get advice from well, people like Meredith Edwards who understand contingent loan mechanisms through the non-custodial child maintenance system and for the tax office to mm. finally say mm -hmm. okay we do think it's, it possibly can be done and for the economics to be sorted out and it was in essence sorted out, I think. But I've been, ever since the global financial crisis, mm. 
I've been curious to ask you, I was going to ask you privately, Ken, kind of where you don't have to tell everybody. <laughs> uh, so why don't we just treat this as off the record? <laughs> <laughs> the, global fi the, the fiscal response in Australia was, was pretty remarkable. Um, mm. I'll say that as a complete outsider, but the idea that there had been anticipated and planned for after we'd had you know, 20 odd years of um, very stable growth through most Western economies, particularly Australia. But there it came. I mean, the expenditure was very significant. It was it really targeted on credit constrained households and it was, it was cash and mm. it kind of worked. Uh, there was an article out this week from the Economic Record which analysed fiscal and monetary policy in China context to the Australian um, reaction in those years. So I did want to kind of, I'm very curious, how come you knew what to do? And mm. if you spent all that time preparing it, why weren't you doing something more useful? Because <laughs> the chances of this happening were so slight. Well, well, that's, well, I think that's true. Um, <laughs> what do you mean, why weren't we doing something more useful? Well, it just what, turned out what, that way, what, didn't it, right? You're well, lucky. Yeah, uh, lucky. <laughs> didn't feel like it at the time. Uh, no, look, I understand the question. It's, it's a very interesting question. Actually, um, um, I'll take you back to 2004. Well, I'll take myself back to 2004. Um, and in the Treasury in, in 2004, we were having, uh, about every month, we'd have the senior 20 or 25 people in the organisation sitting in a room talking about, um, well, major policy issues that sort of sp at least span the responsibilities of the department and many of them span the responsibilities of government. And we just found this an enjoyable thing to do, Bruce. And, and during, uh, during one of those uh, conversations, uh, Martin Parkinson, who was one of my deputies at the time, he nudged me and he said, you know, it's just occurred to me that you and I are the only two people in this room who have any experience, lived experience, of the recession of the early 1990s. And I said, that can't possibly be right. But I looked around the room and had to concede that it was true, that whilst he and I had had some relevant experience of the recession of the early 1990s, um, nobody else in the room had. And, and I interrupted the flow of the conversation and I said, Martin, it's just remind, well, just, um, drawn to my attention something that's rather more important than anything we're talking about now. And um, we, um, we decided that we'd have a, a couple of conversations about what you would ever do as a department if you were confronted with a very sudden um, slowdown in macroeconomic activity. And the reason, there are two reasons why it was a really important conversation for us to have as a department. The first is what I hope is the obvious one. Uh, obviously, if, if you are, if you're the, the chief economic advisors to the government of the day, there can't be anything more important, really, than saving people from the horror of a recession. There can't be anything more important than that. So that, that's enough. But there was another reason, and it was this. Um, and this is, this is actually what was etched in Martin's mind, and in mine, was that in the early 1990s recession, Treasury played itself out of the policy advising game. And it did it in spectacular fashion, uh, fashion because it said to the government of the day, the best thing you can do is sit on your hands and allow the automatic stabilisers to work. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, 
On the uh, weekend of the 10th and 11th of October 2008, so this is almost a month after Lehman Brothers mm. collapsed, and, and a few of us um, were meeting with the Prime Minister and two other ministers in the Cabinet Room here in, in Parliament House, and Wayne Swan was calling in from uh, a basement of a house in Washington, because he was in Washington attending uh, a G20 finance ministers meeting. Um, um, and um, in, the, um, in the conversation, um, we, uh, I, I recalled um, the circumstances that lay behind our investigating this issue way back in 2004 because when the Prime Minister... I, I set out for the Prime Minister the macroeconomic circumstances as we saw them evolving. And this was off the back of a recently published IMF report that had basically said the world's going to go into a recession. It had only come out a couple of days beforehand. We were meeting on the Saturday morning. And, uh, and he said, well, wh what do we do? And I said, well, the first thing to understand, Prime Minister, is that the exchange rate will depreciate. Second thing to understand is that um, whereas the Reserve Bank on Tuesday of this week uh, capped the official cash rate by 100 basis points, there will be more coming. Uh, and he interrupted me. And he said, you're going to tell me we should just sit on our hands and allow the automatic <laughs> stabilisers to work, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, no, Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. No, Prime Minister, I'm not here to tell you that. So what, what we had done uh, in the Treasury was ask ourselves that question. Uh, what can we do to um, give the government the best chance of steering the economy mm -hmm. through... Uh, a bad macroeconomic shock in a way that hopefully avoids recession. And then secondly, and this, is, um, uh, this was also important to us as public sector advisors, how do we make sure that we, stay, we, we remain at the table so that when the government feels that it needs advice on responding to the evolving circumstances, and we didn't know what was coming, um, we're going to be there at the table. It's, they're not going to be um, taking their advice from... Uh, from somebody else. Um, it wasn't that we knew what was coming in 2004. We didn't know that we would ever see these circumstances. We certainly hoped that we never would. Um, but when the circumstances arrived, yeah, we had done the work. Yeah. We had done the work. Yeah. It, it's a really interesting story, that, Ken. I mean, I don't think anything like that level of preparation had been done in the British Treasury. Mm. But I think there's a broader point about the value of wargaming yeah. in government. And I'm a huge fan of that. We did it in the Department of Health when we were planning for bird flu, avian flu, you remember all that? Mm. I mean, it was a sort of extraordinary moment. We had these meetings with you know, all the various scientific advisors and the medical advisors, and I remember in the middle of one of those, you know, one of these guys said, well, of course, we're talking about bird flu, he said. Of course, probably won't be bird flu. You know, it'll be swine flu or something completely different. The, the medical advice and the scientific advice was kind of changing every five minutes. Mm. But the general consensus seemed to be that something very nasty was going to happen. And we did, um, we did a very structured war game exercise over a period, I think, of about three weeks, which was really valuable 
in actually honing the preparations we were making. So yeah. I think yeah. as a more general policy tool, tool it's, it's uh, a good lesson there's as well. There's wargaming, the I think, is, is important. Um, wargaming, scenario the, planning of various kinds. Yeah, of the other thing that's important is the narrative. Absolutely. Um, and having an accurate recording of what happened, of the history. Because invariably the history of these sorts of events is written by people who have a vested interest in a mm. particular slant. Maybe that's true of all history. Yeah. Um, and I, and it, I think it's the case in Australia as well. Because um, although it is true that there, there is some academic literature now that um, uh, is convincing on the question of, of the fiscal policy response having helped Australia avoid uh, a recession in the global financial crisis. You know, I was saying to Bruce earlier, I've, I've been to, I've attended conferences all around the world where I've, I've seen somebody stand up on stage and say, well, Australia was lucky. Oh. It avoided the global financial crisis because of its relationship with China, <laughs> its trade relationship with China. And, you know, I mean, how ignorant can people be? Mm. Um, China actually suffered a very sharp slowdown in the global financial crisis. It had been growing for years at 15% per year, and, and then through 2008, its growth rate more than halved. It was growing at the rate it's now growing at. And, you know, people are wringing their hands about China's mm. growth rate. Um, China's crude steel production had been growing at rates of 20 to 25% year on year on year on year, and through 2008, fell by 15%. It just collapsed. Price of iron ore in US dollar terms through 2008 fell by 70%. Our exports to China in November of 2008, just after Lehman's collapsed, fell by a third. Right? Mm -hmm. um, the mining industry in Australia uh, reduced its employment in the five months from uh, through to May of, of 2009. The mining industry in Australia reduced its employment by 15%. And just think, if every industry in Australia had behaved in the same way, by June of 2009, Australia would have had an unemployment rate of 19.1%. And yet, all over the world, you'll hear people saying that Australia avoided the global financial crisis mm. because of its close trade relationship with China, that China dragged Australia um, uh, out of the worst of the impact of the global financial crisis. And it's just nonsense. And, and it's important, I think, yeah. that the history is written the history is understood, and that people tell the story. But, but Ken, you know, the politics of this. Mm. I mean, if I think about what happened with the financial crisis and its impact on Britain, mm. I mean, first of all, we had this very big disagreement between the Chancellor, the Finance Minister, who was Alistair Darling by then, because by then Gordon Brown was Prime Minister. So Alistair was very clear and said publicly, this was going to be the worst economic crisis to hit the global economy for 60 years. Gordon was absolutely furious. He didn't believe that was the case at all. You know, unleashed his spin merchants to attack his own chancellor. They then got together in terms of taking exactly the right kind of action to prevent a recession. They, and, and obviously increased the deficit in order to, to fund us mm. through uh, avoid that, that recession avoidance. They then fell out again, this is in the run-up to the 2010 election, about what you then did with that increased deficit. Mm. 
And Alistair Darling was absolutely clear that over a period of several years, you had to start bringing that deficit down again. Gordon, who'd, who'd done brilliantly in terms of marshalling the G20 and giving mm. that kind of international leadership, then got stuck in what I think was some very old politics. His dividing line in election campaigns had always been Labour spending versus conservative cuts. And therefore, he was not willing to tell the story of we increased spending by increasing the deficit to prevent a recession. And now that we're through that part of the crisis, we will, over time, responsibly bring the deficit down. Mm. With the result, we went into the 2010 election with no proper economic narrative. Yeah. And the Conservatives went after us for, you know, this massive deficit, typical labor, tax spend, borrow disaster. Of course, got elected initially with a coalition, now a majority of their own, and a deficit reduction program, you know, that arguably was too fast. Right. Too fast, too deep, and in particular at the beginning, much too focused on cuts in infrastructure spending, which was exactly the thing that needed to be protected, and the lack of which is causing the British economy a great deal of trouble now. But Labour absolutely lost that ground, lost any control of the economic narrative, and that still has consequences today. You mm. know, there is no real understanding. Um, politically, if you like, or in the public mind, of how Britain avoided a recession, never mind how Australia mm. avo avoided a recession. Mm. My sense, but tell me, I, I mean, how much credit did the government, the Labour government, get for avoiding a recession? No, very little. That's what I thought. <coughs> uh, very no. little. And, that and was a Dorothy fact, Dixon. Uh, <laughs> it, there are a few things, um, there are several things that stick in my mind about um, the, the difficulty of the decisions that uh, I, as an advisor, and uh, well, the, the public service as advisors, were presenting to them. The most surprising one, but it was the most difficult one for me, was that uh, the difficulty I had in convincing the Prime Minister that he should push the budget into deficit. Mm. This was the most difficult. Yeah. I understood why, because he was a Labor Prime Minister. Um, and he didn't think he'd ever live it down. Yeah. And it turns out he didn't. Um, he didn't. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Because remember, Australia's starting point, fiscal starting point, was that um, he'd come into government with us, that is the Treasury and the Finance Department, projecting uh, budget surpluses of at least 2% of GDP as far as one could see. Uh, and then um, we got mugged by the global financial crisis. And he understood that. Um, and in October of 2008, <clears throat> when we still didn't know what sort of impact mm -hmm. the global financial crisis was going to have on the Australian budget, uh, convincing him that there was a need for some significant fiscal action uh, was not difficult because he thought, I've got all this room to play yes. with. You know, I've yeah. got this surplus of 2% of GDP yeah. to play with, so what do we do? We'll go 1% we'll go of GDP. Great. I said, fantastic. Right. Let's do that came to the early months of 2009, yeah. Wasn't enough. He, had no, he had nothing left. Yeah. He had nothing left. And I remember a very, very difficult couple of meetings in, in Brisbane 
um, where we as officials were on one side of the table, he was on the other side of the table. And, and the difficulty we had in um, convincing him that uh, he had to put those considerations aside, those mm -hmm. essentially political considerations yeah. aside and do what was in the best interests of, of the nation, despite him knowing full well that he would never live down the fact that as a Labor Prime Minister he had deliberately pushed the budget into deficit. And I, I thought, you know, this is a really, really difficult as an advisor to put a Prime Minister in that position. And so we tried in the morning and then um, we broke and he went off and did some other business, came back in the afternoon. And, and I thought, well, you know, what, what, what do I say to this man? And I, and I said, Prime Minister, um, I am advising you as the Treasury Secretary that it is in the national interest mm. to push the budget into deficit. And you can go out there publicly and you can say the Secretary yeah. of the Treasury has advised me that it's in the national interest to push the budget into deficit. And, you know, the budget did go into deficit. From a 2% surplus of GDP, by 2009-10 we had a 4% deficit of GDP, a turnaround of 6 percentage points in the budget balance. Mm. The second thing that he was worried about um, was that, um, and, and, it's, and it's related, um, <coughs> is that um, it might prove very difficult to get the budget back into balance yes. yep. or back into surplus yep. and that he would yep. forever wear, even though these were temporary fiscal measures, sure. he would forever wear the yep. label of, of having destroyed the budget. And so, and today, that's what you hear in Australia. And you'll hear it day in, day out through this election campaign, is that it was that government that yeah. did all the damage to the budget. It's not true because they were temporary measures, but you know it's it's rather difficult to run it's that story. It's hard once you've yeah, mm. and certainly in Britain, and I think probably here too, but certainly in Britain, that all fitted with a very long-standing story that labours the party of economic incompetence. Mm. You know, mm. and a new Labour had been about clawing back. A, the beginnings of a reputation for actually being able to run the, not just run the economy successfully, but actually believe in a successful economy alongside a fair society. And you know, it was those two things, hand in hand, that were at the heart of the whole new Labour narrative and have now you know, completely been thrown away. And anyway, it's another story, the state of the British you know, Labour Party. The, the, but the, yeah. The other thing. And what I was going to say, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm just looking at the time. It would be great if we could let's take do that. a few let's do that. questions so or let's comments. Let's take a couple of questions from the, the audience. Three of us can go on I, I just want to, yeah, <laughs> I, just one thing that's worth re remarking on is that, uh, you know, and you've just reminded me of it, the Prime Minister, at some stage, he said, so if we do all of this, will we avoid recession? I remember. And it's, it sounds like you, Bruce. I said, <laughs> no. <laughs> and that was, our, that was our considered view. Our considered view, and actually the budget. We had, you know, we advised the government to publish a budget after all, all of this fiscal action that actually, and it's the only one I know of, maybe there was one in the 50s, but, but maybe Roland did one in, in 1951 uh, or 52, but um, we published, we had the government publish economic forecasts forecasting a recession. There you go. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> questions from the floor. There must be some questions. Yes. Can we get the microphone? Oh, that's a tricky spot. Uh, that is a tricky <laughs> spot. Yeah. We have a question here. 
Oh, okay. Well, while we're getting the microphone there, yes, please, sir. Okay. Um, I've got a two-pronged question. First one's just a comment and um, <coughs> climate change policy and carbon taxes, which yeah. um, probably um, are an example of um, public policy that gets hijacked by politics. And I'm thinking about Fort McMurray at the moment and wargaming. So I just wonder if um, you've got some comments on that. But the other question was... Um, after this election, um, housing policy, house, housing affordability and that bubble word sort of comes to mind and mm -hmm. I sort of think with Labor in Australia losing, um, winning the 2007 election politically, maybe that wasn't so great. Do you also think that whoever wins this mm -hmm. election in terms of what might happen with housing could also be one that you might actually be better off losing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I don't want to talk about housing. Do you want to talk about housing, Bruce? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about housing. I'll say so. I wouldn't mind saying something about climate Please change do. and Please carbon. Please do. Mm. Um, because when I was um, when I was trade and industry secretary, minister, I was responsible for energy policy, um, and actually Britain hadn't had an energy policy for a very long time, and it was an issue I was extremely interested in. Um, I'd done quite a lot of work on environmental policy, again, back in the think tank. And we did a lot of work. This was in the department, in government. And it was very clear we needed an energy policy framework, which had three objectives. One was climate change, climate change mitigation, mm pollution and so on. Second one was uh, security of energy supply. Third one, critically, was affordability and dealing with a very big problem of fuel poverty in, in Britain. A lot of work around all of this. And, you know, it became very clear to me that we, you, you have to use economic instruments as well as regulation. And frankly, for carbon reduction, economic instruments look like a much better bet than trying to regulate a whole lot of different bits of the economy and government or regulators pretending they know what the energy mix should be and all of that stuff. And so we put carbon pricing at the centre of energy policy. Um, we believed at that point that we could do it through the European Emissions Trading Scheme, which was in its infancy. We were very, very involved in, um, in government, but also the... the the business and financial community in Britain in the design of it. We put a lot of weight on that because we thought if you could get a carbon price and carbon trading, then a whole lot of other things, you know, whether or not you would invest in nuclear power, for instance, a whole lot of other things would fall into place. And unfortunately, it didn't work. It still hasn't worked, basically because so many free permits were given away, the price never got properly mm. established. Mm. So you know, I would view that one as still very much work in progress. But we did along the way, we, we were able, I did this when I was a Treasury Minister, we introduced what I very deliberately called a climate change levy. And I remember Gordon saying, it's just an energy tax. And I said, yeah, I know it's just an energy tax, Gordon, but if we call it just an energy tax, you know, we're going to have some trouble selling it. If we call it the climate change levy, which is what it is because it's linked to your carbon emissions, and that's what appears, this was on industrial users' bills, you know, actually, we can sell it. Back to yeah. the narrative point. Yeah. And he said, oh, all right, if that's what you want, you know. 
Yeah. We were getting on really well in those days. And, um, and so we did. And actually, that, that has been quite useful. That's been useful. But it's very much unfinished business in the UK. And I kind of get the impression it's unfinished business here. Maybe well, unstarted unfinished business, business here. <laughs> the only comment I'd make on it is, is um, and getting back to really the theme of, um, of, of this evening's discussion, is that we did eventually get the ducks lined up on climate change. And when I say we, I mean, I guess I'm talking about economically rational yeah. policy people. Uh, in 2004, quite a lot of work was done in the Australian government, in the Australian public service on an emissions trading scheme. Mm -hmm. um, and the government at the time didn't, didn't take that up. And it was actually in the context yes. of an energy white paper, believe it or not. Yep, absolutely. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't taken up yeah. on that occasion. Uh, that's on the public record anyway. Um, so, uh, but, but by late 2006, with Australia still in the grip of a drought, so-called Federation drought, um, Prime Minister Howard decided that um, his government should have another look at this. And, so, and by that time, all of the Australian states and territories, I, I think all of them had Labor governments, and all of them had mm. endorsed an emissions trading scheme as policy, right? And so when Prime Minister Howard said, we're going to have another look yeah. at this, and then set up a task group, it was called, a task group on emissions trading, uh, which, which included public servants and, and also people from industry and was chaired by his departmental head, uh, Peter Shergold, and I was a member of that task group. Um, and, and then when it reported to Prime Minister Howard, of course it recommended a comprehensive mm. emissions trading scheme. He endorsed it. And so <laughs> we... This country went to the 2007 election with both, uh, actually three major political parties at the Commonwealth level. Yeah. That is the Greens, Labor yeah. and the Coalition, all endorsing an emissions trading scheme and every state and territory in the country endorsing an emissions trading scheme. You would have thought this would be the easiest yeah. thing in the world. <laughs> Talk about the ducks being lined up. Yeah. But isn't it extraordinary, right, that... Um, as I said earlier, you know, some of the most obvious things can be legislated and then repealed. Yeah. Extraordinary. Take yeah. nothing for granted. Yeah. But I, does, I think it does go back to the need to have a well-constructed narrative and, and a persuasive narrative. And be careful Critical. with the use of language. You're right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, question here. So my question is actually... A similar question to what you've just been talking about, but looking at it from a different angle. Uh, you've not talked much about keeping policies. Mm. So with uh, the Clean Energy Future Package under Julia Gillard, the ducks got lined up and the legislation went through, but it didn't stay. So I just wondered if you had some comments on how do you actually keep something there? Mm. Mm. Uh, actually, you know something about this. You must know something about this. Because HEX was controversial. In fact, yes. it was more controversial, probably, after it was implemented than before. Why do you think it's, how do you think it's been sustained? I, I think it was sustained essentially because it seemed to work okay. I mean, mm. it was just very, pretty simple, really. I mean, they, it was treated um, as kind of politically astute, but the economics had no, almost no attention. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of worked out <laughs> publicly that actually this did protect people yeah. right. that it was kind and here's yes. a really important word for policy is it seen to be fair yeah. 
And that was yep. part of the narrative at the time. Is it reasonable that people only pay 20% of the recurrent costs, but only if they're earning over the average, given that mm. graduates do so well, and given that we understand the data were completely yep. important, yep. where people were coming from. So the, the Conservative Party, the, co the coalition, um, was opposed to HECS at the beginning, but um, they had a university charges policy. It was an upfront fee, but without a loan system. Uh, the Senate agreed to pass this legislation. It was the Democrats, God rest their souls, who did a deal with um, John Dawkins, because the Liberals, while John Dawkins never worried about the Liberals, he said they need the money too. Yeah. And thank mm. you, Bruce, it's going to start dribbling in in nine years. So, <laughs> how could they resist? But they, but they did resist, and it was the Democrats that did it. But it wasn't too long after that. I mean, Cabinet at the time increased the outlays by about 15% straight away. And yeah. the reason is they wanted to get rid of the queues. So the queues mm. kind of went away, and the administrative concerns were seen to be not, not a worry. And um, basically, students kind of learnt to forget about it which was kind of the goal in a way. Mm. And I think the money was coming through. And the tax office, which resisted it quite strenuously at the beginning, saying this yeah. cannot work, and that was the other part of the politics, was bureaucratic resistance. Mm. But they kind of got a bit famous because they made it work. And their legislation was incredibly astute and path-dragging. No one had done this before. And other tax officers came to visit and they started charging actually <laughs> their <laughs> advice. How did you do this? A great tax office. And they said, well, it was nothing mm. really. Um, <laughs> we always knew it would be fine, but uh, you know, they, they scratched your eyes out and fought to the death to stop it. But my God, yeah. they were so professional in the end. Yeah. When the fight was over, they just loved it. And because it was administratively fine and there weren't problems for the access of um, poor people. Mm. That was uh, a condition of the Democrats that this would be looked at very carefully. Yes. Nothing was ever found exactly. and that's still, still the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I think the fairness point is an incredibly yeah, yeah. important yeah, point. It it's, it's important not just in the implementation mm -hmm. of the policy or in the, in the design of the policy or, or building support for it, but, but, in, but in having the policy sustained. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think alongside fairness, it worked. Yep. And I think that's critical as well, because if I look at our mm. minimum wage legislation, so we came in in 97 with a pledge to create the first you know, statutory minimum wage for the whole country, and it was really controversial, not on the Labour side, complete agreement on that one, it was lovely. Um, but the Conservatives hated it, the employers' organisations hated it, so you know, it was a real battle to get it through the House of Commons, though obviously mm. we had the majority. Um, and of course, it worked brilliantly. We set up a social partnership, you know, minimum wage commission, so employers, trade unions, independents, to set the actual rate. They looked very carefully at impact on unemployment levels, particularly amongst younger people. So there was a lower rate for younger people, very cautiously introduced, all of that. It had absolutely no effect at all on employment levels. And so all the fears, some of which were real, some of which were entirely political, you know, this would destroy jobs, just as the Equal Pay Act was meant to destroy jobs 25 years earlier, you know, that was all garbage. So it worked brilliantly. And it became, it's become so much part of, you know, just how Britain works, that George Osborne, very cunningly, as Labour was busy, you know, kind of committing suicide, George Osborne just 
stole Labour's clothes and said, minimum wage, not good enough. We're now going to introduce the living wage. There's been a campaign for a mm. living wage which is higher. We're now going to introduce that for everybody over 25. And he just, you know, Labour was just left completely speechless with one of its core and most successful policies stolen yeah, uh, by incredible. the other side, which I guess is the ultimate compliment and the <laughs> ultimate in uh, longevity mm. for policy. Yeah. Look, uh, we're going to have to wrap this up shortly, but I think we'll take one more question, yeah, more quick question and even quicker answers. We'll um, see. I'll try to make it very quick then. My question is about um, politics and policy and the intersection between the two. And I'm yeah. just curious about the current political environment where in some situations you have a very adversarial type of thing where bipartisanship's a bit of a dirty word and people are trying to distinguish each other you know, by opposition. And I guess negative gearing is an example where perhaps there might have been agreement between the two parties and now for political reasons they're sort of on different sides. But then conversely you sometimes have areas like terrorism or counter... Uh, security where perhaps there isn't discussion about policy because again it's the opposite basically where they need to be on the same page to minimize political issues so I guess I'm just wondering in the current environment do you think that policy is going to be easier in some areas than others because of this dynamic that's going on <laughs> yeah look <clears throat> okay, I'll just say a couple of things about it um, uh, firstly Australian politics in my lived experience of it is adversarial. Um, I have seen some rewriting of Australia's economic history uh, from let's say the mid-1980s through to now that, that says that there was bipartisan support for the major economic reforms. That is not my experience of it. That's not my lived experience of it. It's a rewriting of history. It is true of some things. Certainly of some decisions. It's not true of anything in the tax area. <laughs> anything at all. In the tax area, I can't remember any bipartisan, apart from a tax cut, I can't <laughs> remember bipartisan support for anything in the tax area. Um, and, uh, uh, oh, well, of course, unless you think an emissions trading scheme is a carbon tax, and then <laughs> briefly there was uh, bipartisan support for that. Um, and, and I think it's just, oh, and, and by the way, in the global financial crisis, you think that was politically uncontroversial? No, that was not politically uncontroversial. Um, in fact, as a public servant, um, that was the most difficult time for me um, in trying to, in, in wanting to be seen to be an apolitical public servant, which is what I believed I, I was being and, and offering advice in the national interest. Uh, it was incredibly political, the environment that I, I found myself in. I've never, on any other issue, receive such a torrid inquisition from opposition members in the Senate. Never, on any issue. Um, uh, so, and there you would have thought that there was, there had to be bipartisan support for doing whatever it would take to shield Australia from this global financial crisis. Not at all. Not at all. So it's intensely political, uh, intensely partisan Australian politics. And Yes, you do get bipartisan support for for some things, and they, you know, they tend to be the things which, from a social perspective, look a bit extreme, frankly. Um, and just about everything else is up for political debate, political contest, and political point scoring. And I hope that's not too dark a reflection for you, but that is my reflection. 
Does, do you want to challenge that? No. Uh, just a little bit. Good. Um, yeah, look, of course, politics is a zero-sum zero game in the sense, you know, one party wins, another party loses, one person becomes prime minister, another person doesn't. Um, so there is always the risk of a policy which actually everybody knows is the right policy being opposed for wrong reasons. In other words, partisan or personal reasons. Absolutely happens. But there, certainly in Britain, and I would hope in Australia as well, there are also politicians who you know, will rise above that on issues they really believe in. So there were conservative members voting with us, for instance, on tuition fees, you know, when their party was completely opposed to it. Um, you know, and, and you can point to various examples of that. Just as in both sides of politics, there are, you know, good policies that will be opposed by individuals because they want to do down, you know, the prime minister or the, the minister who's putting that thing forward. And I think the whole question of how you mobilize consent mm. beyond partisan politics is absolutely critical. We are not going to get into that really today, but it is absolutely critical. It goes, it certainly includes, but it goes well beyond this very strong narrative and mm. building popular support. For me, it goes right into the area of how you, I would use the phrase deliberative democracy, how you actually engage the public yep. in a structured conversation that takes it past party politics into this is what the country needs. Mm. And if you create the right kind of forum for that discussion, you can actually get people agreeing to things which if you'd simply put to them in a, in a referendum probably mm. or an opinion poll, they would have said no to. I do and believe I, that. You know. I do believe that. Yeah. Uh, so I agree with you on, on that. We just don't have nearly enough of it in Australia. And in fact, the world doesn't have nearly Indeed. enough of it. Um, Bruce, can you uh, give us a comment to finish this, this discussion? And then I'm going to, we started this evening with one of our outstanding PhD scholars. We'll finish this evening with one of our, uh, hearing from one of our other outstanding PhD scholars. But before that, Bruce. But thanks, Ken. I just wanted to say on the, on the theme, most often the ducks aren't in line. In fact, hugely most often the ducks are not in line. And I can think of many things that uh, economists and others have thought through, modelled properly, which don't come to fruition. And mm. I've been involved in lots of them. Um, the last 15 years I've spent a huge amount of research time and policy kind of engagement time on the whole concept of using income contingent loans for a whole host of other things. It's an, a remarkable mm. instrument. It gives insurance. Mm. You can't default on these on these systems. It can be very progressive. Instead of grants that, that we mm. probably shouldn't support, you can actually use these systems and almost none of it has happened. Mm. The best example, I'll just leave you with this, is work I did with Linda Bottle on drought relief. So over the years, we've given millions, mm. billions actually, of money in the form of grants or subsidised loans to farmers for drought. Now, Lindy and, Linda and I worked on, we actually found, worked out a way of making them revenue contingent in ways that would have no default. The biggest problem for farmers is never drought, a drought, it's the prospects of defaulting on a loan. These loans could be collected in a way that you give the, the farmers the money when they need it, take it later, 
complete completely mm. covered by insurance, mm. costs taxpayers much less than before, is much more progressive. Uh, we, we know how it would work. We've sat down with rural accountants and modelled the whole thing. It's mm. all fine. It comes to nothing mm. because of agrarian sentiment. Yeah. Every time we get any attention, every party goes never, never, never because everybody loves the farmers and everybody sheds a tear when a farmer's in trouble. Well, do we shed a tear when small business is in trouble mm. or when a country mm. town is in trouble because of the drought or because um, mm. other, uh, other calamities that happen to special groups? So the politics in that example mm. was completely profound. I don't mm. think we'll ever get those ducks lined up. And in the end, the politics is, is really very powerful. Yeah, well, I think that's right. Uh, but don't give up, Bruce. <laughs> don't give up. Okay, uh, Suzanne Aquila uh, is going to say a few words. Uh, she is, Suzanne, is from the Attorney General's Department. She has submitted her thesis. Round of applause, please. And, um, <laughs> and how's this uh, for, for a topic? It's on how and why states intervene to protect their citizens abroad. There you go. Uh, Which is not what you're going to talk about, about tonight, it. is it? That's not no. what I'm going to talk mm. about tonight. I'm just here to do a few thank yous, actually. Um, and I just thought I'd share a couple of reflections. First, that I just found that so fascinating, just hearing um, the stories and your reflections, and I'm sure everybody else did as well. It made me think to myself, there are a few things like that it struck a chord uh, for me. The first is that individuals are really important in a reform agenda. Mm. It seems like, you know, you kind of look at it from the outside if you're not in the public service, and sometimes even when you are in the public service, it feels like you can be insignificant. And I think tonight is a real reminder of the importance of the individual in putting forward ideas, campaigning or lobbying to the right people at the right time and being able to communicate a human story. Um, the other thing was the human narrative component of public policy. Or I was thinking about it as like flashbacks for nerds or something <laughs> like that. You know, if you're really into public policy and you want to know what happens behind the scenes, this is exactly the sort of event you should be at. And, um, I, you know, I found it really nerdily inspiring. <laughs> Seems like I'm in the right program. Um, and then finally, it just reminded me of what a privilege it is to be a part of this organisation, this foundation, that it really creates an interface for scholars, for the university and for Australian public servants to come together and talk about ideas and to talk about evidence-based policy. Mm. How do we formulate that? Where do we get it from? How do we take that to government? If you're gov in government, how do you find that and then utilise it or um, kind of use it at your disposal. So those were my reflections on it. And I think that uh, I'm sh I felt like people were on the edges of their seats <laughs> with excitement, and I, I certainly was as well. Um, now, there are a number of people that put these events together, and um, they don't happen on their own. These people work tirelessly. So I'd like to thank uh, Melanie Fisher, who's at the front, and Lauren Barsh, who Absolutely. put together all these events um, along with ANU events um, and our board, the Sir Oliver Muslim Foundation board. And the members of the board really commit their time to the vision of the organisation and to its scholars. So we're extremely lucky to have them at our disposal. Um, for those of you that are interested in the work of the organisation, of the foundation, you can sign up to our mailing list, just a quick plug, and you've heard that there's also an event on next week, so I would encourage you all to get along. It's at the National Library at 12pm. There's a free lunch, I've heard, for those of you that are interested. No, no such thing, Bruce. <laughs> no such thing. <laughs> yes. 
free-ish. Uh, <laughs> Steve Sedgwick uh, will be there, Michelle Grattan, John Hewson, Mike Kennedy, Warwick McGibbon, Jan Harris and Miranda Stewart. So I'd really encourage you to get along to that. Um, a big thank you to you for coming along. It's really wonderful and heartening, particularly as a scholar now back in the public service, to see that so many people are engaged with these issues. It's a privilege and an honour to be able to continue to interact with the public on these issues, and I think it's incredibly important and it's timely to do it at the ANU now that an election has been called and we've been talking about uh, education. Um, finally, I'd like you to thank our speakers who have so graciously shared their stories and maybe even shared a few things that maybe they wish they hadn't have, but <laughs> we're very glad. So please join me in thanking them. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more. <laughs>